Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm your host, James Nurse, a paediatrician and the social media editor at the journal. If you've a pile of journals that you're meaning to get round to reading or a collection of open tabs on interesting articles you've saved for later, then the podcast might be just what you need. A fortnightly discussion around an interesting paper or papers that will hopefully encourage you to read more with content covering the length and breadth of the IMD field. So be sure to take a look at the back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode on mitochondrial trifunctional protein deficiency. One of the things I love about the podcast is how I get to welcome guests from all around the world, but one country I find us frequently returned to is the Netherlands, a true hotbed of IMD research. Today I'm delighted to welcome Marit Schwancher, Dr. Gepke Wieser and Dr. Sasha Ferdinandusa, all of whom contributed to two recent papers, The Genetic Biochemical and Clinical Spectrum of Patients with Mitochondrial Trifunctional Protein Deficiency, identified after the introduction of newborn screening in the Netherlands, and thermosensitive mitochondrial trifunctional protein deficiency presented with episodic myopathy. Marit, Gebke and Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Um, so for me, it made complete sense to combine these two papers, given that they discussed the same disease, have many of the same authors who were accepted within days of each other. It was certainly a gift because I can deliver a two-for-one podcast. Mitochondrial trifunctional protein deficiency is something that we have caught on the peripheries of other episodes, but it's never been the subject itself. So for my benefit, could you briefly explain what it is? Uh, yes, of course. Mitochondrial trifunction protein deficiency is a long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorders. This is a group of inherited metabolic diseases where patients cannot use their fatty acids to produce energy due to an enzyme deficiency. This can lead to a very wide variety of symptoms from severe neonatal cardiomyopathy and hypoglycemia to milder muscle symptoms and, and muscle weakness. Okay. And I'm right in understanding, I think, that you don't actually look for trifunctional protein deficiency on newborn screening in the Netherlands, but you can find it anyway. Is that correct? Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Theoretically, we screen only on LSHOT, but LSHOT is part of an enzyme complex. So if you screen on LSHOT, you evidently also screen on those other three disorders. Uh, yes, so as Gepke just said, the mitochondrial trifunctional protein is a complex which comprises three different enzyme activities. So the, you have the hydrogenase activity, the hydrogenase activity, and the tylase deficiency. If you have a deficiency of all three enzymes, it leads to a general mitochondrial protein deficiency. But for example, if you only have a tylase deficiency, this leads to the LCGATS deficiency, or only the dehydrogenase deficiency, this leads to a LCHAT deficiency. So within the mitochondrial trifunctional protein deficiencies, there are different forms of the MTB. And in the first paper we've mentioned, you've looked at 15 years worth of newborn screening data, which feels like a lot. What did you find? Well, 15 years are indeed quite some years. And well, we found that the patient outcomes were highly variable between and within the different mitochondrial trifunction protein deficiencies. This shows how important it is to accurately classify and discriminate between these different MTP deficiencies, so we can improve the insight in the use of newborn screening for the prognosis prediction of the MTP deficiencies and also to improve the patient outcomes. And the most apparent benefit of the newborn screening for LCHAT was to prevent symptomatic hypoglycemia, but we were not able to prevent cardiomyopathy and long-term complications in those patients. So 
to improve the benefits of newborn screening and more effective treatment strategies are needed. And milder patients for whom the dietary treatment may be most beneficial with normal iscontin profiles and were not found by the newborn screening. So those are the main findings of our article. And might I add something for me, although it's not the goal of newborn screening, I know that all those parents, thanks to the fact that they now knew they had a child with this disorder, in the next pregnancies, they could look for recurrence risk. So they could have counseling and make family planning choices if they wanted. So I know there are now more healthy children born in those families. And that's not a goal of newborn screening because we only screen on disorders which are treatable. With the parents, they said, why don't you do it more often? Because it helped us a lot. Okay. So, I mean, within your data, you've got 13 positive patients found while screening for, for LCHAD. I wonder if you could describe the clinical characteristics of this group. Uh, yes, again, we found seven LCHAD patients, which uh, was the goal, the goal disease of the newborn screening. But we also found five patients with a general mitochondrial trifunctional protein deficiency and one LCCAT patient, so with a dilase deficiency. And all of the LCHAT patients uh, survived and had a relatively mild phenotype. They did develop mild cardiomyopathy, episodes of rhabdomyolysis, and muscle symptoms. And there were also already signs of the long-term complications of nepmentary retinopathy and peripheral neuropathy. Of the patients with general MTPD and the patient with the LCCAT deficiency, four patients died early in life due to severe cardiomyopathy. And the fifth MTPD patient, who was the patient who was missed by newborn screening, had a milder thermosensitive form of the disease and developed muscle symptoms after fever illness or after exercise. So there's a very wide heterogeneity of the clinical phenotype between the different MTP deficiencies. And I mean, forgive my naivety, but why is it we can't prevent the cardiomyopathy if you've got an early diagnosed patient? We don't know yet. <laughs> Despite optimal treatment with glucose infusion from very early in life, we weren't able to improve the cardiomyopathy. So the best treatment we have currently didn't work for these patients. In that same period, you had almost three times as many false positive screens. Obviously, these are inevitable with a screening test. I know within the UK, it's the fear of false positives that's really kept us very cautious about our newborn screening to the extent we only have nine conditions we screen for. Do you think you're getting the balance about right? Uh, that's indeed a, a difficult question to answer. Weighing the benefits of screening against potential harm is difficult. A false positive screening result has indeed a high impact on parents. There are studies that show that parents worry more and are anxious, uh, leading to a higher seeking of medical help after a false positive uh, result. So we, we try to aim for as less false positives as is possible. For me, one in four is not bad. One in 20 would be bad. So I hope that's an answer. It's a very difficult balance to strike. Yeah. Uh, that the families with affected children, they don't want a, a child to miss at any cost. Absolutely. I was going to ask about the false negative, but as, as you've kind of mentioned, the false negative really kind of leads into the next paper and how you've had this issue around a patient presenting with thermosensitive disease. Uh, what do you mean by thermosensitivity? And is this a common contributor to presentations in inherited metabolic disease? Well, we know that temperature can influence the function of protein. 
And at higher temperatures, the protein can become less stable, lose uh, conformation stability, and therefore may lose their function if the protein changes. And normal non-mutant proteins, they function well at body temperature and also at 40 degrees at, at fever temperature. That's not a problem. But when missense mutations and following amino acid changes influence the conformational stability of the protein, that may not be a large problem at 37 degrees, but if the protein gets even more unstable due to an increased temperature due to the fever at 40 degrees, then the protein may unfold or the proteins may aggregate, and this may lead to a decreased function. And well, this phenomenon has been reported for several inherited metabolic diseases, also for MCAT. And we see this can play a role in inherited metabolic diseases. It's a big worry, isn't it, when we do screening based around certain thresholds? And we see it with our MCAD families who have obviously had biochemical perturbation because they've come out positive, but then with a compound heterozygote. And a lot of our families are saying, do you think they could go a bit longer? Do you think they could fast a little bit longer? And we don't know how sick they'll get when their child is otherwise unwell. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about your cohort of patients with thermosensitive MTP deficiency. Uh, well, our cohort consisted of five patients with this disorder, and they all developed febrile illness or exercise-induced muscle symptoms during childhood. And the muscle symptoms provide from muscle pain and muscle weakness to a very severe rhabdomyolysis leading to intensive care admission or muscle weakness leading to a respiratory insufficiency. So there was a pretty wide variety in disease severity. But all five patients had a very long diagnostic delay from four to up to 16 years. And the diagnosis was only made after trial exome sequencing was performed or gene panel analysis. And by that, variants in the HATHAB gene were found. And after these variants were found, the physicians were able to look into the enzyme activities of the mitochondrial trifunctional protein. And, well, the first enzyme analysis didn't really show uh, large deficiencies, not as big as we are used to seeing MTPD patients. But because of the relationship with the symptoms and temperature, also enzyme activities were measured at 40 degrees. And that showed a significant decrease of the enzyme activities, which was compatible to the clinical phenotype. And after this diagnosis was found, uh, dietary measures were initiated. And for the patients who were compliant to the diet, this was very beneficial. So this shows importance to find these diagnoses and to find these patients. Do you always go back and look at enzymes at different temperatures? No, it's not always. But I think maybe Sasha can tell us a little bit about when we do that. I think for me, it's interesting because if children get a fever, which often happens in their early ages, you always wonder what is happening in fever. But, but do you want to take measures to prevent something? So I'm, I'm very happy Sasha is working on this. I think we should always be aware of it. And I think in our laboratory in the Amsterdam UMC, we are very well aware of the phenomenon of thermosensitivity, especially in fatty acid oxidation disorders. So when we receive material, we always carefully review the background information that is provided. So the clinical symptoms, whether a variant has already been identified and metabolite studies. And then we do have different complementing tests available in fibroblasts. 
And especially the enzyme assay for MTB deficiencies is very sensitive. So I do not think it's always necessary, but you should always be aware of it. And we are. And I do think that these cases have highlighted the importance to do the full characterization in fibroblasts. And often it's not done. So I do hope that when people read this article, they realize how important it is to collect fibroblasts and send them to do the full characterization with these different sets of assays in fibroblasts. Because it, it does feel like we're moving away from more invasive testing as we embrace next generation sequencing more and more. Obviously, I suppose the reality is when you get parents of unknown significance, this is going to be really important on the functional work and the follow-up, I take it. Yes, Indeed. I must say the requests we get are often the variants of unknown significance, but I think it's only a small portion of uh, the patients that are identified. So I do hope physicians will collect material and have these studies done. Is there any value in repeating sort of some of the more basic biochemistry when children are febrile as opposed to when they just come in to see us in clinic? If I might ask from a clinical point, if we have a patient with an unknown disorder, we try to do the general biochemical workup during an episode of fever and specifically ask patients to come in for taking blood at that time. So Marit knows it better than I do. The acylcarnitine profile might be abnormal during fever. It's not for the fatty acid disorders alone. We do it also with amino acids and other things. I think it's important. It's not only in the laboratory, but also from a clinical point. You don't do this, James? Um, we've had this difficulty in the last two years that when you've had a fever, you've got query COVID, and then you're not allowed into the hospital. So we need to get back to normal. Uh, I mean, I know I've seen people trying to do things around fasting, but I've not consistently seen anyone requesting that a child presents with fever to get their sort of metabolic screen repeated. Maybe that should be common practice. Maybe it is in the Netherlands. Maybe it is in the UK, and I just don't know that. So hands up, just a general pediatrician. Uh, I wouldn't recommend in, in general, but for the, the, the patients who you struggle with, I would recommend if you don't have access to fibroblasts or anything else. So these patients we're talking about struggling with, febrile illnesses are common in childhood. I'm, as I said, general pediatrician I keep saying it to try and defend my ignorance I'm you know not a bright general pediatrician but so I'm always interested in what should make me think is this something different is this, is this more than just a cold just a just gastroenteritis are there any consistent red flags for these groups of patients that are going to make you think this is something else um, yeah I think all five patients developed severe muscle symptoms during and after the febrile illness um, and it was a repeating phenomenon that every time they had a fever they developed those muscle symptoms and these severe symptoms could not all be explained by only the fever or the cold or the uh, infection they had so I think that if you see those weird symptoms which do not fit to your diagnosis and well, especially when there's such a clear relationship with the temperature, then this should be something to think about. But I think it's mainly that the symptoms they developed didn't fit to only the fever, or only the colds they had. I think that's the most important trigger. Okay, so if we're, if we're seeing a patient with persistent rhabdomyolysis, so persistently abnormal CK, I'm assuming, with a fever, then they suspect something out of the ordinary. I mean, does this mean that there are other HADHB gene variants that need to be revisited because the fibroblast enzyme studies need to be repeated at a different temperature? 
Well, it's of course difficult to say with 100% certainty, but uh, because we are so well aware of it and in our lab, we do perform the uh, direct enzyme analysis, which is very sensitive. I dare to say within the cohort we studied, it will not be necessary. But um, like I said, I do think it, it stresses the importance to do the full characterization in fibroblasts. So as long as you've gone to the good Dutch lab, you've got the right results. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, perfect. So there are these two fantastic papers. What's next for your team? Mal is actually now doing a very interesting bit with the exercise. I think it's important that they keep on exercise. Yeah, yeah, we are um, trying to gain more insight in the effects of exercise on the different long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorders by performing endurance exercise tests and also measuring the CK levels the day after uh, exercise, just to gain insight what what's happening and how much can they do, what's, what's the trigger, and also to be able to perform the exercise over the years just to gain insight in how is it before puberty, how is it develops it during puberty, changes it. So that's very interesting to see. Well, I think it's going to be very useful for patients because there's obviously lots of reluctance around exercise in conditions where you worry about it's going to trigger rhabdo episodes. Yeah, and what we heard from the metabolic physician for the adult patients, she says, well, when patients keep exercising, it goes better than when they stop exercising and then try to start it up again. So the more they keep exercising within their boundaries, the better it is for the patients. Well, thank you for answering my questions. If this has left you wanting to know more, then please click the links in the podcast description or go to the general webpage and search for mitochondrial trifunctional protein. And if you'd like to hear more from us, including a JMD shortcast describing three patients with a late onset presentation of uh, MTP deficiency, then look for JMD podcasts wherever you like to listen. Marit, Gepke and Sasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.